Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. The U.S.-China relationship is increasingly tense, but the rivalry is complicated, and it's far from clear that the Biden administration has a fully fleshed out strategy that can guide policies in that region. The Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft recently published a report that proposes a strategy that rebalances U.S. engagement in, in East Asia towards economic integration and diplomatic engagement and away from military dominance and, and political control. My guest today is one of the authors of that report. Jessica Lee is a senior research fellow in the East Asia program at the Quincy Institute. She studies U.S. foreign policy in Asia with an emphasis on North Korea, which we will talk about. Jess, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. It's great to be here. Talk to me in broad terms about the report you co-authored with Michael Swain and Rachel Esplin Odell. What approach do you guys propose to deal with China? The Quincy Institute, when it launched in December 2019, uh, was always uh, positioned to weigh in on both the Middle East and East Asia. And so when I joined the team uh, around that time, I was very excited to you know, dive into uh, various aspects of what a U.S. strategy toward East Asia ought to look like that is more uh, diplomatic and less reliant on the military as uh, sort of the first and primary use uh, and demonstration of U.S. power in the region. So, but unfortunately, our team, uh, the East Asia program, uh, didn't fully get constituted until about September of last year. And so uh, we didn't start to write this paper uh, intensively until, you know, several weeks after that. Uh, but my co-authors, Dr. Michael Swain and Dr. Rachel Esplin Odell, and I uh, knew, you know, going into this project that the world had changed so much um, and that we're living through, uh, you know, one of the most historically unprecedented times in modern history. So um, in that sense, this project was quite daunting because there was just so much to grapple with and digest uh, and analyze. But in this context, it was not lost on us that uh, it's more urgent uh, than ever before to really understand the key dynamics in East Asia, which is home to a third of the Earth's population, a third of global GDP, and 40% of human car uh, carbon emissions as well. So in this paper, we explore the strengths and the weaknesses of past and current U.S. policy toward the region and try to present an alternative uh, alternative strategy that is based on diplomatic engagement, first and foremost, and military restraint. And so specifically, we, felt, uh, we sort of analyzed three major trends uh, in East Asia that we believe uh, need to better guide U.S. strategy going forward. First, of course, is a shift in the regional balance of power, uh, mainly between China and the United States that has you know, reduced military uh, and economic primacy of the United States. Um, and China's influence in the region has grown. And there, is, uh, and there may be an unstable balance of power that really threatens the, the security and stability of the region in the long run. Uh, we're also seeing increasing tensions over regional disputes like North Korea, which we'll talk about, Taiwan, uh, maritime uh, sovereignty disputes, and others. And so, you know, as these trends are uh, appearing, you know, I think there um, is uh, a, a, a growing uh, worry uh, and, and concern among some, uh, you know, experts that this is sort of a perfect storm because not only do you have these changes that are taking place that the United States and countries in the region are not used to, uh, we're also seeing an increase in, you know, uh, the U.S.-China strategic competition. Um, and so these things, I think, together uh, present a very uh, volatile and uncertain uh, kind of 
uh, landscape, um, you know, where a, a small incident could quickly spiral, spiral out of control uh, or, you know, be perceived as, you know, a pawn or part of some sort of a zero-sum uh, effort uh, in which the United States and China continually challenge and try to uh, one-up each other. And then finally, we're seeing as a third major trend, you know, growing na uh, transnational challenges, whether it's pandemic, uh, like the one we're going through right now, or the deepening climate crisis. Uh, which will affect, you know, my daughter's generation and, and you know, the, the next generation of people who are living on this planet. Um, and so, you know, couple that with the fact that we have new technologies that are emerging very quickly. Uh, and you have a situation where policymakers really will need to grapple with a series of very difficult questions about, you know, what U.S. engagement ought to look like. Um, you know, what are our supply, uh, supply chains supposed to look like? What does economic interdependence uh, with China look like? Um, and, you know, how do we mitigate uh, the planetary level crises that we know are coming uh, that require more cooperation rather than confrontation? And, you know, I do think fundamentally as an institute, we're very clear that these transnational issues are not going to go away and they're not going to be resolved overnight. And they're definitely not going to be resolved by U.S. and China scapegoating one another. Um, and, you know, there will need to be some humility and cooperation, um, uh, you know, that is embedded in the structure of the bilateral relationship. Um, cyber attack is another transnational threat that we know is happening um, much more frequently. Um, the UN just, you know, released a confidential report that showed that, for example, North Korea stole $300 million through cyber hacks and attacks, uh, you know, in the computer domain. So, you know, it does seem that, you know, faced with all of these uncertainties, the United States really does need to position itself uh, so that on one hand, it can effectively address uh, legitimate concerns in the region, such as China's military rise, but do it in a way that doesn't force countries to have to choose between the United States and China, or uh, otherwise, you know, make short-sighted decisions that uh, could just exacerbate, um, you know, tensions and uh, create misunderstanding. Okay, so some of the trends in the region recently certainly complicate matters, um, but how does that influence, I mean, what should we do about it, essentially? How should our approach change? For, for example, the report mentions a large reduction in forward deployed military forces in the region. So why is that, for example, an important part of this strategy? Well, I think, you know, there has to be sort of a broader reckoning uh, about, you know, what uh, sort of fundamental assumptions we make in U.S. Uh, you know military posture in East Asia. You know we have alliances and uh, commitments that you know uh, date back to the Korean War, uh, World War II, of course, um, in the case of Japan. And so, you know, th there uh, has not really been you know I think a serious uh, assessment of where things stand today in 2021 uh, in terms of what. The best, most constructive way uh, of, of using U.S. Uh, you know resources ought to be. Um, you know, I think this is exacerbated by the fact that uh, in the Congress, which you know appropriates funding, um, they uh, every year they pass a bill <laughs> that you know authorizes uh, and and puts money uh, toward the Defense Department. Um, and so you have that going. Uh, whereas in the State Department and you know diplomatic agencies, they don't get that same level of attention. And so our playbook uh, has remained quite stagnant on the diplomatic side, while militarily uh, through the Pentagon, we are constantly trying to innovate uh, and outcompete. Um, and so I do think that there is, um, you know, the current scenario uh, really has, uh, you know, not been sustainable. Uh, it's been very expensive. 
but it is causing, you know, I think in in in, in some respects, um, you know, more tension than ameliorating him. Um, and I think that there needs to be just a broader recognition that, you know, this is not a sustainable path for America, especially during this, uh, you know, uh, crisis that we're living in uh, right now with the pandemic, where, you know, the federal government is barely able to handle this crisis in part because resources are scarce. And we're going to have to uh, force our lawmakers to think more carefully about opportunity costs as these um, situations in, in the region uh, demand more and more of our attention. What should our solutions be? Um, and so as part of thinking through that military restructuring, you know, to your, to your question, you know, this is a complicated one because on one hand, we don't think that the United States needs to leave East Asia tomorrow or even next year in terms of withdrawing troops, you know, ground troops from Japan and South Korea and doing things that, uh, frankly, would be very destabilizing. But we do want to force a debate uh, around, you know, what is the ideal uh, scenario in which, you know, countries in the region together with the United States can address uh, challenges and uh, do it in a way that's peaceful and doesn't, you know, lead to war. And so this is, you know, like I said, uh, quite a complex uh, kind of analysis to undertake because, uh, again, I think doing something precipitously would be um, not in U.S.'s interest, but we also can't uh, ignore uh, some of these broader, uh, you know, trends uh, from Washington that has made military uh, the the first and sometimes only uh, tool uh, in our toolkit uh, in the region. So there has to be a balance, and I think uh, we're going to actually be under uh, we're currently undertaking a study to look at this in greater detail because, um, as you know from studying this issue, um, simply saying you know one thing without really backing it up with sort of the the budgetary and other analyses are not going to really go anywhere in Washington. You know, you basically have to try to persuade policymakers that this is going to save money, this is going to keep Americans out of harm's way, et cetera, et cetera, and make a case. Um, and so we haven't, that's not what this report is about, unfortunately. We just didn't have um, the time uh, and the capacity to do that. But we uh, are undertaking a, a study uh, more or less to that degree um, so that we can answer questions from policymakers like the ones you raised and others who say, okay, well, if we do it your way, what will that mean, you know, for, you know, our federal uh, deficit? What does that mean for American troops, uh, our armed forces, et cetera? And I think those are the questions that uh, we really need to be able to answer clearly. You mentioned U.S. allies. Um, I think there's a presumption among some people that uh, our allies will kind of be with us, be fully on our side in any dispute against China. Uh, and uh, it seems the picture is a bit more complicated than that. So uh, what what is the view of, of most U.S. allies in the region of the U.S.-China rivalry? Yeah, that's a great question. And you've written about this, so I, I'd love to kind of hear about your thoughts on this as well. But as you know, the countries in Asia don't want to have to choose, right, in, in this U.S.-Sino rivalry. Um, it doesn't do them any good. In fact, in the case of South Korea, it hurts them. Um, you know, back in 2017 with the THAAD deployment, um, South Korea was punished, um, you know, to the tunes of $7 billion in, you know, economic retaliation by Beijing that cut off tourism, uh, entertainment, K-pop, and, and a whole host of, you know, things that really hurt South Koreans. And they're still bitter about it today. <laughs> so, you know, these damages don't go away overnight. They're profound. They have real impact uh, on, on the countries that, you know, essentially feel bullied. Um, and so I think that's something to keep in mind in terms of, you know, having uh, allies in the region. Um, you know, I, I think 
too often in Washington, and I've seen this, you know, some of it, uh, you know, in the halls of Congress where I used to work um, more than 10 years ago. But, you know, there is a sense that, you know, among some American policymakers that like we have all the answers and we're the most powerful. So when we, you know, say we're going to do something that, you know, is about includes consulting with allies, we it's it sort of sounds like it, it almost feels like lip service um, when our allies you know, are dealing with the, the the challenges in much greater proximity than we are. Uh, and their economies are much more intertwined vis-a-vis uh, -vis China than ours. Um, and so, you know, to kind of simplistically say, well, we're going to compete with China at, on every front and our allies, because we defend their security, um, you know, have to stand by us or else uh, we're going to, you know, do something scary to spook you <laughs> and have you begging for us to come back. I mean, that is, you know, I think the wrong way to look about, uh, look at this issue. And I think, um, you know, I do uh, worry that, you know, even in the Biden administration that, you know, has pledged to be less transactional and more thoughtful about alliances that, you know, this tendency to sort of drive a U.S. centric agenda, you know, and kind of bulldoze our way through, um, you know, with this belief that U.S. dominance is unquestionably good and that it's everlasting. It, it's nothing. Nothing's going to change. You know, that I, I think all of these assumptions um, have a certain degree of hubris. Um, and, you know, as we're recording this, I mean, we, we're living through a pandemic. You know, it, it, it's our country is. Um, you know, is is hurting. Um, and I think um, the American people um, just don't know uh, to what degree, um, you know, some of these decisions are being made in a very untransparent uh, way. And so I, I hope that, you know, the work of Cato Institute and Quincy and others can really, um, you know, put these debates more in the mainstream um, and really, you know, get to a place where uh, policymakers will have to grapple with them uh, and will have to answer for them. Because a lot of these choices, like I said, don't get made in a, in a very uh, open way. They don't, um, you know, include a lot of debate among people of various, you know, perspectives. Um, and so you, you're, you know, you're not seeing, um, you know, the, the ideas being challenged and, and contested, you know, in Congress in ways that they really, you know, ought to be. And so um, I, I worry about that. And I think, you know, to your question about, you know, alliances, you know, one of the things that we pride ourselves in, in terms of our connections to allies in the region is that so many of the countries there are themselves symbols of democracy and have really, um, you know, done uh, wonderful things to, you know, uh, to support their communities and, and to play, you know, a major role in, in the global, you know, uh, stage. And so I think there's a lot that we can be proud of in terms of, you know, how much the United States and our allies have accomplished together. Uh, but, you know, it, it's by no means that the United States, you know, has all the answers or that, you know, uh, countries in the region's uh, perspectives matter less uh, because they uh, happen to, you know, be uh, part of this, uh, you know, security arrangement. Um, I think, um, you know, there uh, needs to be, you know, I think much more uh, kind of, uh, you know, self-reflection and uh, just, uh, you know, a, more of a critical approach to uh, what we were able to accomplish and and what, you know, the next 10 to 20 years of, you know, uh, a, a constructive uh, kind of engagement to the region uh, should look like. And, and I hope our report uh, is sort of the, you know, provides some ideas uh, of how to get there in the mid to long term. Okay, so let's drill down on, on North Korea a little bit. Um, the report recommends a way forward. And 
I want to get to that, but first, I think a little background is in order. There's a long history of post-Cold War engagement on North Korea, and uh, but that's not it's not so long that it doesn't, uh, you know, both each side, North Korea and America, have this kind of memory of this uh, of uh, the ups and downs of the relationship and previous failed agreements and um, pushes towards negotiations. And so why don't you just give us a, a sense of that history and, and how we got to where we are now? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think, you know, North Korea is one of those issues where it seems like it's sort of everywhere because we read about it, you know, in the news every day virtually. And, you know, it, it's it's almost like a given that people have a baseline understanding of, you know, the, the history of U.S.-North Korea negotiations. Um, but you know, as you're alluding to, uh, that's not always the case. Um, and I think, you know, we both sides suffer from amnesia uh, and both sides are guilty of scapegoating the other in terms of, you know, um, previous deals that, you know, just failed uh, and, and collapsed uh, due to lack of trust. So you saw this uh, in, the, in the, you know, 90s, uh, you know, after um, the Republican revolution, um, it, you know, uh, that uh, established a majority, uh, you know, for the Republican Party in Congress in 94, you know, the Republican uh, lawmakers uh, prevented and actively obstructed, you know, the Bill Clinton administration's uh, agreed framework um, and criticized uh, President Clinton for being too soft on Pyongyang. Um, at the same time, Republicans didn't offer any sort of alternative to improve the agreed framework's cap on North Korea's development of nuclear weapons in uh, exchange for um, uh, energy assistance. And so they were being publicly very critical without offering, you know, a uh, an alternative to, you know, help advance this, um, you know, what what I continue to think was 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 a good deal uh, and, and something that the U.S. Uh, ought to have clenched and kept. Um, and so within 10 days of signing the agreed framework, um, you know, Ambassador Steve uh, Bosworth said the deal had become a political orphan uh, because there were so much uh, kind of objections uh, from Capitol Hill. And so that kind of paved the way for hardliners within uh, the George W. Bush administration to kill the agreed framework. And then you saw sort of, uh, I think it was five years after that agreement had been reached, the Defense Intelligence Agency kind of asserted that North Koreans were building, you know, some sort of a, a secret nuclear kind of facility uh, that in direct violation of the agreement. And so uh, Joel Witt uh, at the Stimson Center, who was then uh, at state, went out there um, to Kumchangli and 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 see, you know, what was going on. Um, and even though he later verified that there was not a nuclear facility in Kumchangli, um, you know, this sort of uh, be became a, a very big uh, problem uh, that soured the bilateral relations and really epitomized the degree of mistrust that, you know, existed between the United States and North Korea. And so, you know, and then there was also subsequent concerns by uh, Americans about, you know, kind of uh, uranium enrichment program that North Koreans were covertly kind of developing that, you know, pretty much killed the agreed framework altogether. And so, you know, I think part of it is, you know, there's so much mistrust uh, that, you know, it's uh, really in, in some ways daunting to, to imagine, you know, a future in which United States and North Korea uh, coexist uh, without threatening, you know, to annihilate one another, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I will kind of leave this on a high note in the sense that, you know, when I read past negotiations, the United States and North Korea has been moving slowly. Um, the, the word slowly is doing a lot of work in that sentence, uh, but slowly moving toward, you know, um, 
uh, what I uh, think uh, will uh, be uh, some sort of a breakthrough um, in, in relations. Um, you know, I've looked at kind of the the exchanges of comments by senior officials beginning nineties. Um, you know, and and you look at sort of the agreed framework itself. There's one sentence, you know, about formal assurance from the United States uh, against the threat of uh, or use of nuclear weapons. Um, and then uh, there were more peace related concessions in the six, uh, six party talks, uh, two thousand five kind of uh, statement. Um, and so. And that one was much kind of more uh, blatant and clear and explicit about U.S. not attacking or invading North Korea uh, and also affirming North Korea's right to exist and its sovereignty. And so I think these security guarantees uh, were really um, groundbreaking um, and something that we ought to, you know, look back on and, and try to, uh, you know, mobilize support around. Um, but you know, it's going to be hard uh, because, as we know, the right now there's uh, it seems uh, all focus is on China. And I understand uh, why. Uh, but at the same time, the North Korea issue uh, is so grave um, and we know so little about the country that, um, you know, it is really at our peril in terms of just kind of keeping this at the back burner, because um as soon as North Korea does something, you know, provocative in order to get the U.S.'s attention, which it has wanted to do, you know, U.S. is going to be, um, it, I mean, the Biden administration is going to feel like it has to respond somehow uh, to show strength, right? Um, and, we, you know, this is going to reignite this vicious cycle of blaming uh, one another, um, threatening each other, um, and you know, doing things that uh, is is going to just make the region, you know, much more destabilizing. And I think countries in the uh, in, in East Asia understand that. I don't think they want the Biden administration to just simply go back to the pre-Trump era of, you know, non-engagement. You know, um, just sanctions, sanctions, sanctions. Um, I think there is hopefully <laughs> more pressure, uh, both domestically here in the U.S. as well as abroad, that that. Uh, that train, uh, that that strategy is not going to work um, and that we need to really invest much more uh, toward a more creative solution. You know, I imagine there's there's a bit of transitional awkwardness in, in each time there's been a transition to a new administration on North Korea policy. Right. But there's a special kind of difficulty that the Biden administration faces because I think the you know the the Trump years of of uh, fire and fury and then engagement, which you you left out of your recap, were kind of confusing uh, and kind of working at cross purposes sometimes and kind of sometimes self contradictory. And uh, of course, it was also precedent breaking because no sitting president had sat directly around the table with uh, the leader of North Korea. So how does the last four years? Uh, impact the way that the Biden administration is currently able to to approach this issue? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a great question as well. I think when Deputy Secretary of State Steve Began went to South Korea um, in December and, you know, spoke about the future of U.S. policy toward the region, you know, he called on North Korea to come back to the negotiating table and, you know, really spent, I think, a lot of time 
uh, assuring South Korea that U.S. remains committed to the alliance and the relationship. Um, and so, you know, uh, the part of the speech that uh, he made uh, that jumped out at me the most was when he emphasized the the need to end the the seventy uh, year uh, Korean War and to establish peace on the Korean Peninsula. And so, you know, I do think that you know, to your point, a lot has happened in the last four years in the Trump administration to uh, to to do something that goes even beyond uh, what you know past negotiators have been able to achieve. And I think the 2018 joint statement signed in Singapore was a great step. But of course, when the Hanoi talks failed in February 2019, a lot of uh, folks who um, were hoping to see um, much more progress uh, by way of you know uh, normalizing relations between the two countries, for example, there were some talks of opening liaison offices, um, you know, relaxing of certain sanctions, inter-Korean uh, cooperation, really, you know, gearing up full force and doing, you know, amazing things to um, to connect the Koreas. But uh, of course, none of that uh, transpired. And, you know, as of today, um, you know, we, we know that there uh, doesn't seem to be, at least publicly, um, you know, any indication that um, the United States and North Koreans are engaged in any level of official talks. Um, you know, that said, we know there has been uh, plenty of uh, unofficial uh, engagements, um, you know, among, you know, uh, current and former uh, government officials and, and others to try to, you know, improve the and strengthen the sort of the connective tissue, um, you know, between the two countries uh, that, you know, isn't so focused on what the government of that country is going to do. Um, and so I think the track two work uh, that folks, you know, in our community has been doing, um, like Suzanne DiMaggio at the Carnegie Endowment and others, really, I think, matter and, and have great value uh, because the talks uh, between U.S. and North Korea have been uh, broken down at, at such a level that, um, you know, like you said, it's going to take a lot for the Biden administration to assess um, and then, of course, build from that, which I, I hope he will do. But, you know, one of the things that I worry about is that the Biden administration will just say, well, you know, we tried diplomacy and look, look where it got us. I mean, and, you know, North Korea has more nukes now than before <laughs> Trump began, you know, his very unconventional heads of state level meetings around the world. And I think that is a very flawed reading of what has happened. Um, it's true that uh, the last four years has been a, a bit of a roller coaster ride for those of us who, you know, followed closely what the Trump administration, um, you know, said and did. Um, you know, those of us who read and tried to analyze what Steve Began was doing, uh, you know, I, I mean, th there's a lot of, you know, of us who really, I think, had high hopes that, you know, despite the the chaotic nature of, of his approach, that the Trump administration would ultimately, uh, you know, uh, be able to secure an agreement that would be embraced by countries in the region, including South Korea and Japan, um, and, and really um, transform bilateral ties, as I think he also wanted. Uh, but, you know, the execution was such that, um, you know, the, the longer we waited, uh, I think the more it became clear that, um, there just wasn't sufficient support to um, to bring uh, some sort of an agreement, you know, to the finish line uh, beyond, you know, the joint statement in 2018. In your report, you recommend that the United States transition to a policy involving gradual, synchronized steps towards peace and the denuclearization of the peninsula. First, I want to ask if denuclearization is a wise basis for 
talks going forward. Is this a non-starter for Pyongyang, and should we actually expect them to forfeit their nuclear weapons, which they rather reasonably view as protection against foreign military threats? Yeah, I think, you know, this uh, question is something that I grapple with a lot. Um, you know, I think keep maintaining denuclearization as an ultimate goal, uh, I think makes sense. Uh, but I know that, uh, as you just pointed out, um, unless the security environment for North Korea changes dramatically, it's difficult to imagine a world in which North Korea would just uh, unilaterally give up uh, its security guarantee. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, what you're getting at is, you know, what are sort of a long-term vision versus a more pragmatic, you know, short-term kind of strategy. Um, and that's why, you know, in the report, we talk about, you know, more of a synchronized step-by-step -step approach where we build confidence over time uh, and, and try to get to a place where, you know, uh, denuclearization is possible. But right now, it's not even remotely possible because uh, there's so little trust. And, um, and I think United States also, um, you know, has hurt itself and its credibility by uh, just unilaterally pulling out of, you know, agreements like the Paris Agreement uh, on climate um, and JCPOA. So, you know, it, there seems to be uh, uh, some sort of, um, you know, schizophrenia <laughs> amongst uh, those who, you know, want everything and those who say, you know, we can't give anything um, uh, away. Um, and it's it's just very, you know, I think confusing. Um, it doesn't uh, help our case. Um, and then, of course, North Korea's behavior is, is, is such that, um, you know, there are very few uh, advocates who say, yeah, let's just do everything they want. I mean, that, that, that just doesn't, that community doesn't exist in Washington. There's, you know, I think understandably a lot of skepticism about what North Korea's true intentions are. Um, and, you know, some of the most vocal kind of commentators on, on North Korea issue, um, you know, come from the intelligence community, the military community, and, you know, they're very skeptical and cast, I think, a very pessimistic uh, picture in terms of what's possible. You know, I don't share that level of pessimism, uh, but I, I, I am realistic about what, what can be done and what can be achieved. And there's no shortcut to this. I mean, there's, there's no way the United States can just receive the, the, and, and, and get the kind of trust that it would need for, uh, any agreement to stay, not just, you know, in the Biden administration, but in future administration. And that's why, you know, I talk about the Korean War so much, because, you know, if we are able to formally end the Korean War, that will unleash a set of questions that nobody in Washington, I think, has been wanting to answer. You know, if the Korean War formally ends and there is a peace treaty, like there has been in other wars, you know, what does that mean for um, you know, American uh, presence in the region. Again, uh, it's not something that we should be flippant about and, and be, you know, I think careless about in, in talking because these are, uh, this is a very unstable situation. But, you know, once we can kind of unlock peace on the Korean Peninsula, I think a lot of other questions about, you know, U.S. relations with, with countries in the region and, uh, you know, getting more of our allies and friends uh, to do more for their security. All of these things start to, I think, make sense. But when you have this looming threat of, you know, North Korea and its nuclear weapons, by the way, we don't even know how many nukes they have because they've hidden uh, so many of them, uh, that, you know, then everything becomes scary. Everything becomes, you know, deterrent space. And, and nobody wants to talk about, you know, doing anything that, um, you know, is, is bold uh, because 
you know, the, 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 you just can't credibly make that, you know, case. Um, and so I do think that thinking more along the lines of, okay, what are the underlying uh, conditions uh, with which North Korea is making its decisions to arm uh, and kind of work, working backwards from there is a much wider step. You know, you almost, yeah, I think you preempted my next question a little bit, which was going to be, you know, what needs to happen between North and South Korea for, um, you know, because you guys talk about the need for the emergence of a strong and stable Korean peninsula free from foreign military forces. Um, and I think most Americans kind of think it's rather odd that we still have tens of thousands of forces in South Korea protecting a very rich and uh, capable military power. Um, so, I mean, I was going to ask what what is required. Is it normalization of relations? Is it uh, a full peace treaty? And also maybe you could talk a little bit about, uh, do we do we kind of uh, hamstring our, our South Korean allies a little bit? Do, do, do they prefer to be negotiating with Pyongyang with a bit broader parameters? than their major ally, the United States, permits? Yeah, I mean, those are really perceptive questions. I think, um, you know, in terms of the future of the Korean Peninsula, you know, obviously that's in the hands of the Korean people themselves. Uh, but, you know, as you and I know, uh, the United States is a is a big player, uh, in, you know, and, and a big factor in that equation, given, you know, our role, um, you know, with the with the military, uh, you know, uh, kind of security guarantee that we provide um, for the Korean uh, South Korean people. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think that this it, it's. I mean, we're so far, I think, away from, you know, thinking about any kind of, um, you know, inter-Korean breakthrough. And I, I say this with, you know, not to be like kind of snarky or mean about it. I, I just think that we're, we're ways off. Uh, I mean, there, there's just um, so much that would need to happen. Um, you know, there is a DMZ that separates the two Koreas and the South Korean people of, of all people should know uh, that, um, you know, North Korea can be uh, a bad actor. You know, the South Koreans have died. Um, there was a war, <laughs> you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a great deal of, I think, skepticism and mistrust, um, you know, toward uh, North Korea. That said, you know, as we have seen, um, you know, in the Moon Jae-in administration, this focus of you know, a more peaceful Korean peninsula has been uh, a big sort of a centerpiece of, of this government. And so as progressives, um, you know, in South Korea try to carve out that path, I, I think it's going to, um, as you suggested, you know, require the United States to back off a little bit. You know, this is not something we can manufacture. It's not something that we can, you know, generate. Uh, but, you know, we can be a supportive partner uh, to South Korea, our ally. Uh, and we can, you know, as you uh, alluded to in your question, also try to create the atmosphere that would allow for closer inter-Korean cooperation. Again, mindful of the, the historical uh, history of animosity uh, between the two Koreas, you know, this is not going to be easy. This is not, you know, something that can happen overnight. But the United States has a major role because when United States says at the UN uh, and the UN Security Council that we need to uh, sanction North Korea or we can't allow for more progress on inter-Korean issues, that matters. Um, and so given U.S.'s outsized role in international fora uh, and, and given our, you know, commitment to the region, um, you know, and to our allies, I think the United States um, is going to play some role. But, 
you know, it has to do it in a way that's constructive. It has to take into account the fact that South Korea is a democracy, just like ours, uh, our country. And, you know, you, um, there, there is that component of, of the government, you know, uh, needing to reflect the will of the people. And I guess, you know, to summarize, I, I would say the South Korean public, um, you know, I think uh, will need to contend with this question on their own um, and, and figure out, you know, what makes sense in terms of some sort of a more peaceful arrangement. Um, but it's going to take time. And I think um, most relevantly for this conversation, it's going to require the United States to play more of a supporting role rather than the dominant role in deciding what inter-Korean process, peace process ought to look like. So the report that you co-authored offers a lot of new ideas that are um, contrary to a lot of the, the status quo. Um, how do you think your advice lands with the Biden administration? Does it look like an approach that they may uh, take heed from or uh, ignore entirely or uh, follow wholly? Uh, what do you think? Well, I would like to think that they've at least read our executive summary <laughs> of the report. Um, but, you know, to your question about some of our specific recommendations and, you know, I've, I've uh, spent most of my, uh, you know, career in Washington, you know, analyzing and understanding the Korean Peninsula um, and, you know, kind of U.S. foreign policy, you know, from my time on the Hill and uh, have uh, gradually been learning more about U.S.-Japan alliance and the relationship there. But, um, you know, the... It, I, I do think that the Biden administration is aware uh, that there isn't a neat consensus uh, when it comes to, you know, the best way forward uh, on addressing the urgent threat of, of North Korea, as well as uh, restoring, you know, and, and strengthening the alliance with South Korea. I think they're aware that there are diverse views. But to, to your point, um, you know, the kinds of things that we're saying and the questions we're raising um, let's just say you're not hearing them in the halls of Congress, <laughs> in congressional hearing rooms, uh, you know, and, you know, we're, we're just not sort of at that point yet where it's almost inescapable, um, this narrative uh, that the U.S. needs to really fundamentally, you know, rethink uh, its strategy. Um, and um, so, you know, I think part of the reason for that is um, there are folks who are you know, marginalized in these debates. Um, and I think there are uh, some, you know, uh, who sort of mischaracterize, you know, the things that we say or, or do um, to sort of, you know, fit their narrative of, of what, you know, Quincy Institute or what a restrained, you know, foreign policy ought to be. So I think there's some of that. But I think, you know, for the most part, um, people just aren't used to dealing with these questions. Um, I think it's almost, um, you know, I've gotten reactions from folks in sort of the establishment, you know, that I've I've sort of debated and talked to publicly about, you know, various issues where, like, you could just tell visibly that they're just not used to being challenged. You know, they're used to, like, heads nodding, <laughs> you know, it's all about, yeah, of course, U.S., you know, dominance, of course, you know, we need more, you know, um, yeah, go after China, you know, like, they're used to sort of that kind of blind, almost blind, you know, <laughs> affirmation. And and I don't think the American public's there, um, you know, surveys after surveys that I see that you see, 
uh, that we cite in our writing show that the American public is much more restrained and pragmatic about what a U.S. foreign policy ought to look like in the 21st century. Um, and of course, the COVID pandemic has thrown, you know, I think a lot of assumptions, um, you know, uh, I mean, it, it's really, I think, uh, forced us to think as a nation about, okay, how do we protect Americans right now? You know, let, yes, it's great to be powerful everywhere, but like, let's take care of Americans right now because there's so many of us dying. Um, so I do think the timing is, 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 is part of, you know, what I hope will be sort of a gradual recognition that, um, you know, we need to have these conversations. You can't avoid it. Uh, you can't pretend like everything's fine because <laughs> everything's not fine. And so, um, and it's hard, like I said, to, to have these conversations sometimes. It's sometimes very uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, I, 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 every time I read a poll uh, or, you know, a, an op-ed by a Gen Zer, uh, Zoomer as they're called, um, or, you know, some other kind of, you know, uh, perspective that's not featured prominently in mainstream media about, you know, these issues, like I, I, I feel like I am ultimately on the right side. Uh, but it's going to take a lot of people to do justice um, and to work with people like you, John, to try to create more awareness um, and, you know, hopefully, you know, uh, some policy uh, change as well down the line. Jessica Lee, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.